Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Melissa Clark to the show. Dr. Clark is well known in the field of industrial organizational psychology and has served as chair of the APA Division 14, which is the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology, or SIOP. She is currently an associate professor of IO psychology in Franklin College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Georgia. Today, we will learn more about her academic journey, advice for those interested in the field of psychology, the Wafer Lab, and learn a little bit more about her lines of research. Dr. Clark, Welcome to our podcast. Hi, Brad. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. I've read a lot of, uh, of your research, and I find it very interesting how it's evolved over the recent years, as we were talking about before we started this podcast. But, but before we get started, I kind of wanted to ask you a general question. What made you gravitate toward psychology in general? And then what sparked your interest in particular about industrial organizational psychology? Well, um, so we'll probably get into some of the details uh, throughout the podcast, but, you know, I really didn't have a lot of background in psychology in, in high school. There was never a class in psychology. So when I got to college, um, I just found myself really liking and enjoying those classes as opposed to other classes that, you know, you just have to take as part of your prereqs and um, curriculum. But these ones I actually looked forward to going to. Um, and I had, you know, never heard of industrial organizational psychology, but I saw this class and it was called organizational psychology. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty interesting. And I like psychology classes, so I'm going to check this out. And I loved it. I just found every day just fascinating. And um, so really, you know, going, like, going into college, I thought I was going to do something business related. But then I liked these psychology classes almost better than the business classes. And then I realized I can combine the two. And so that's where kind of my interests gravitated towards IO psychology is what we call it. Um, but still didn't quite, quite form what I wanted to do with my career till actually much later. But yeah, I just found it really interesting. And I like, you know, learning about different theories and how they apply to the real world. And I just love how applicable it is. We all have to work, right? So um, why not understand um, how we can uh, enjoy our work and how we can be more productive and be more happy? And uh, yeah, so I just, um, that's kind of how I got into that, that area. Okay, well, that's a good explanation. It, it, it probably has evolved. IO has probably evolved over the years because of most people having to travel to work. And now obviously that has changed. And and I almost feel like the swing of the pendulum has changed. Okay, now more people are working from home. Oh, now we're good to go back to uh, work. Oh, I take that back. Now <laughs> the second wave has come and we got to stay back uh, at home. So it'll be interesting to talk about some of your findings later. I did notice that uh, you received a Bachelor of Arts in Organizational Studies from the University of Michigan. So mm -hmm. two questions there. Why did you select the University of Michigan? And is that was that class kind of a precursor for I.O. or was it a totally different realm? Um, OK, so first, the question of Michigan. I come from well, I grew up in Michigan and I come from actually Michigan household. We were fans of the football team growing up my whole life. My stepdad went there. My older brother went there. And after me, my two younger sisters went there. So five of us in my immediately wow. <laughs> immediate family went to Michigan. So I was a lifelong fan and it's a great school, obviously. So I always knew I was going to apply to Michigan. And so it really wasn't on my radar to apply to a bunch of other schools. I actually only applied to one other school. Uh, I wanted to apply to, to Michigan State as a backup as like my, my backup school if I didn't get into Michigan. And my stepdad actually, I kid you not, he ripped up my application and said, I won't help with college at all if you if you go to Michigan State. That's wow. how much we hate each other, right, <laughs> this rivalry. <laughs> so my backup was Michigan uh, U of M Flint, uh, the satellite school uh, close to where I lived. So that was it. It was Michigan or nothing um, wow. as far as college. And um, 
So the organizational studies major, it's sort of in hindsight related to IO psychology, but that wasn't really how I thought of it. I was kind of all over the place in college, like a, probably a lot of your listeners not really knowing exactly what they want to do. Um, again, I always thought I would do something related to business, but thought it would be more consulting. So, at, you know, my sophomore year, junior year, the major started. It was brand new. And it was really, I think, geared towards people like me that at, at that point didn't know what they wanted to do. You take three concentrations and you form your own major at that mm -hmm. point. It's evolved since then. It's become much more formalized. So I took... Um, psychology and communications and business and said, well, this is my major. That's organizational studies. And so, you know, I just took classes in those three areas as my focus. And it, what was really cool is I, you can kind of craft it to be however you want. So um, that organizational studies major, it sounds like, oh, well, that would be a precursor to IO. But actually, it was I think a function of me not knowing what I wanted to do at that point in my life and just <laughs> taking the classes that I found most interesting. But in hindsight, that's actually completely applicable to the field of IO psychology and kind of what we focus on. So it well, so it part sounds, of what we focus on. Right. It sounds like it. And, and it's kind of funny that uh, I, I've heard of other people, uh, including myself, when I went on, to, uh, on my uh, graduate uh, work as well. You can do this or you can kind of create your own um, as well and, and more so on the undergraduate uh, uh, work where you kind of create your own as well, even more so now than in the past, I think. But mm -hmm. um, can you remember the, when you first considered earning a graduate degree in psychology? I know that you kind of created your own mm -hmm. under organizational studies. Was it during your undergrad work that you decided, hey, I want to continue this? And when did you first consider getting a graduate degree in psychology? Um, actually, it wasn't. So yeah. even upon graduation, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I was honestly completely lost. And the only I worked a lot of different jobs growing up, um, and some of them were kind of crazy sales jobs. I sold knives uh, when I was in high school, and I sold books door-to-door -door when I was in college, believe it or not. And so really, sales was something I could, you know, think, oh, well, I, I still didn't know what I wanted to do, but I need a job after I graduate. So um, I said, well, I'll just get a job in sales, but, you know, that's you can do that anywhere. So first, actually, let me pick a place to live. So what I did was I thought, you know, where in the United States would I want to live? And I picked San Diego. So I moved to San Diego and I found a sales job after I moved there, actually. And uh, it was not only it was, you know, I worked, I think, a couple years in the sales job. And and really, for a variety of reasons, I found myself hating it. Um, and it wasn't until that point that I was like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I cannot do sales my whole career. Mm -hmm. So I thought back to college and I thought back to the classes that I really, really liked. And what kept on coming to mind was this organizational psychology class taught by Dr. Fiona Lee. She's still there, actually. She's wonderful. Um, and I thought, well, what can I do with this sort of degree? And so in looking her up and kind of what she does, I realized that there was actually um, PhD programs in IO psychology. And, you know, it wasn't something that we talked about in my family, like going to get a graduate degree, that kind of thing. And I was the first person in my family to um, apply to a PhD program. I had no idea what it was like, what I was doing. I mean, in, in hindsight, it's a it's a miracle I got into grad school. It really is because um, I just really didn't understand what um, what a PhD program was all about. I didn't know that they actually gave you stipends, uh, you know, and actually paid you a little bit <laughs> to go to graduate school. Um, it wasn't until after I got an offer that I was like, what, they're going to pay me, you know, $15,000 a year to be a graduate student? That's crazy. Um, and, you know, at that point, I still never, ever thought I would be a professor. I still thought, well, I'm going to do something in business. I kept on going back to that, right? Well, I'm going to do consulting. And um, so, you know, definitely um, I was one of those college students that, that really was unsure what I wanted to do. Um, 
you know, didn't really know what a graduate degree was all about. And I'm really happy that I sat and reflected on my favorite classes and kind of came to this place where I realized IO psychology is, is kind of where I, in the back of my mind, I always wanted to be, but I didn't really know what to call it. Like I didn't have a name for it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, um, I can talk to the, all the students about what not to do in undergrad because I definitely <laughs> was not prepared to go into graduate school. You're, you're probably not the only person on the planet has, who has been uh, through that and realized, oh my gosh, there's all this stuff that I didn't even realize mm -hmm. can happen. Uh, you can become a TA, an RA, you can get stipend, you can get a full yeah. ride, you can get any, any you know, wide range. And so mm -hmm. I, we always tell our listeners and, and uh, viewers, do your research because there mm -hmm. are certain programs, whether you want to just go uh, a master's terminal degree or a, a, a PhD, and then in passing, uh, you get that master's as well. And so that right. leads me up to my next question. You attended Wayne State University for your doctorate in Iowa psychology. Mm -hmm. Were there other schools you were considering? And if so, why did you choose this one? And the follow-up is, did your dad say, no, I'm going to tear this up if you <laughs> don't go here? <laughs> Luckily, by that point, he was just proud of me that I was um, kind of pursuing grad school. There's sure. not this animosity towards Wayne State either. Right. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so I had applied. So when I decided I wanted to go to graduate school, um, I realized that I was behind the eight ball because I did not have, and this is what I, what students should not do if they want to get a graduate degree in psychology, I did not have any lab experience. I did not volunteer in a research lab. I had no um, close personal connection with any of my psychology professors. Um, it, you know, a lot of the classes at Michigan are really large seminar classes, so anywhere from 150 to 300 students. So you're sitting in this big auditorium, and you don't get those connections with professors. So when it came time to get letters of recommendation and things to put on my CV or resume, uh, I was kind of freaking out. You know, how, how am I going to do this? I actually flew back to Michigan, set up personal meetings with um, a couple of the, of the TAs I had, the graduate TAs, because at least they knew my name and knew who I was. And then a couple professors um, from Michigan flew back to meet with them and just, you know, have coffee so they can put a name to a face and basically begged them to write a letter of recommendation for me. Um, and so, and also, you know, no lab experience. I realized I needed to apply to as many schools as I could afford because I knew my chances were really slim of getting in to, to anywhere, really. And so I ended up, I got into Wayne State. Uh, I also got into, I think, Central Michigan and uh, a couple other schools that didn't really offer stipends. Um, and so so I had some choice, but I, I got rejected from all of the top programs. And now it's like, well, no wonder I didn't have any lab experience. <laughs> um, and so, but, you know, I visited Wayne State. I really did not want to go back to Michigan. As you can see, I moved as far away as I could. I really hate cold weather. Um, I know you live in Minnesota and you know you, you probably really like it, but I hated it, you know, so I did not want to go back to Michigan, but my two top choices were both in Michigan. And so, but I just really liked it there. I love the people. And um, so I chose Wayne State as uh, my, the place I was going to go get my PhD. But again, um, it, it's not like I had my, pick of all of the very top IO programs. Um, I'm so grateful for uh, Wayne State taking a chance on me. It's someone that, that there's not a lot on this resume to see if they are going to, you know, be able to make it. And actually, I was talking with one of the professors, you know, way back when, when I was in grad school, and I said, why did you accept me? I had zero experience. And he said, well, we really liked your work experience. It was really unique. And mm -hmm. So thank God I had some of these crazy kind of sales jobs that I think really made me interesting and, and stand out a little bit from the other applications. Yeah, you had mentioned that you sold knives. I think it's the same knife uh, company that I actually sold knives, Cutco, maybe. It is. Yeah. <laughs> See, I still have the block of knives in the kitchen. They're actually amazing. <laughs> I still have mine, too. And I, I, yes. don't, know why we're, I don't know why we're advertising Cutco. <laughs> I, I still have mine from years ago as well. So that is hilarious. Yeah. yeah. 
So Small world. You, you mentioned that, um, you know, here's what not to do. And, and you would recommend GitLab experience. Uh, uh, think about while you're in undergrad and even mm-hmm. before then trying to think about, well, who uh, can help me get more experience, exposure, and then eventually ask them for letters of recommendation because you really don't think about that. In high school, for sure, you don't think right. about that. And then undergrad, you really don't think unless you know you're going to you know, continue your, your education, go to grad school. But in your case, mm-hmm. you weren't even planning on it, so you, it didn't even cross your mind. And so right. any, other, any other bits of advice for um, those who want to continue uh, seeking their master's or doctorate degree, what else can they do? And specifically, mm-hmm. anything else that they could do to help them increase their chances in the IO psychology uh, branch? Yeah. So, you know, it's just become more and more competitive over the years. You know, it, in our program, we get over 100 applications and we might take four, mm-hmm. you know, and all of the all of the people are just really good. Um, and so I would say, you know, one thing, as I already mentioned, is to, to get lab experience. It's ideal if, if it's an IO lab and you can work with a, an IO professor. But um, I have accepted students that came from colleges where there wasn't an I.O. program there. There weren't I.O. professors. And so they worked in other labs, Uh, other psychology labs is preferable, I think, over, um, you know, other disciplines, although still any lab experience is good experience. Um, So get involved in at least one lab, hopefully something that really interests you. And really, it's just a matter of. Um, seeing if this is something you can see yourself doing, you know, in a career. And maybe this is something that once you get in there and you do it, you realize, I don't really love this so much. And so if you're, you know, considering two very different areas, go see if you can volunteer in labs in those two different areas and just, you know, get experience, get exposure and see what stands out to you. Because, you know, one you never know what you might actually find yourself liking. But two, if you're like me and you have to kind of think back to, all right, well, now I know what I want to do. What did I do in undergrad to help maximize my chances? I think the the bigger you can branch out, the better. Mm-hmm. But um, so to stand out, you know, in grad school and especially in IO, because it's becoming more competitive, um, it is it's really tough nowadays to um, get accepted into a program if you don't have any lab experience. And um, a lot of people think, well, I'm going to go into IO psychology. I need work experience because it's work related. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's actually, I think kind of, at least in a PhD program, kind of a myth. Um, I think the main thing is to get that background in uh, psychology and in the research methodology, you know, process and understanding how to write a research paper, that kind of thing. I think that's more important actually than saying, well, I need to get an internship or I need to get, you know, this practical work experience. It worked out in my case, but, um, I don't really think that's going to be the most effective route for, for most, uh, students now today. Um, and I think, um, let's see, learning about IO psychology so that when you write your personal statement, that kind of thing, um, you understand what the field is all about. Um, definitely programs, a lot of them have mentorship models where professors bring in students to work directly with them. And so at least at at UGA, we have a mentorship model. And so we ask students, who do you want to work with? And in the personal statement, we look for, well, do they know my research? Can they, you know, talk about how, you know, working in my lab would be something that would be interesting to them? Do they have some research ideas that they're talking about that are related to the work that I do? So do not just write a generic letter like, oh, I just want to do IO psychology and then send it to all the programs, right? You have to customize it for each program. Um, You know, most programs, like I said, have this mentorship model. So you really do need to do your research and um, look up the professors and kind of narrow down your top 
to, you know, kind of rank order them. I you know, really would like to work with so-and-so, but put a backup because if that person's not accepting students, you don't want to be just ruled out right off, like based on unluck that, you know, that year, mm -hmm. oh, they're not accepting any students. So put like, you know, your first, your second, and sometimes even your third choice and why you want to work with all of them. So, so really make yourself stand out in that application. So mm -hmm. do the work, you know, in terms of lab experience and understand IO psychology, but really make yourself stand out and customize your, your personal statements. Very good advice. And I, if I can add a couple ideas uh, along with that, I remember going through undergrad and then grad school and then just reading articles uh, and then uh, find out who the authors are and, and the professors and the researchers are and then mm -hmm. start looking at their other research. And if they're all over the place, that's fine. But if they if they have a niche and if they have kind of lines of research, then don't be afraid to reach out to them and just say, hey, I read your article on this and I found this fascinating. I do have a question for you. And then, you know, inquire that I, I've heard of some of my guests reaching out and, and similar in your case, they weren't even planning on it. They didn't have letters of recommendation ready. And instead, they actually started reaching out to the researchers and mm -hmm. building that rapport and that uh, relationship. And then that helped improve, in this case, her chance to get in and, and actually work under this, this other professor. The other mm -hmm. thing that I'd probably suggest is I'm going to share my screen uh, for the audience and for you as well is there are many different organizations out there that you could become a member of or attend. And, and PSYOP is one of them, Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology, both here and then uh, within the APA. And that kind of leads me to, you served for this division, I think it was just last year. So now, now you're probably reminiscing, oh, I remember the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, right. and you had, to, you had to, as I recall, anytime that you chair one of these uh, organizations or divisions in APA, you have a training period where you train in the year before you take over. Tell us a yeah. little bit more about your experience with, with APA and PSYOP. Yeah, so for this, it was actually a three-year term. So the first year was shadowing the current um, chair. And so in that case, I went to the, I had never been actually to the APA convention. Our main conference is SIOP, the mm -hmm. Society for Industrial Organizational Psychology, that first page you were on. Mm -hmm. So I've gone to that a lot, but I had never been to APA. APA is for all the different divisions of psychology. And that's a really great conference for undergrads to go to. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you can hop around to different sessions and again, it's all the different divisions of psychology. So if you are torn between, well, I don't know if I want to go into social psych or IO psych or health psychology, you can attend sessions in all of these different areas. So APA is fantastic. I really encourage um, undergrads to go to it, to submit posters to the poster sessions. Um, so anyways, my first year was shadowing the current chair. My second year was actually running the whole convention by myself. That was a crazy year. Uh, it was a lot of work because we, I put together the convention and then COVID hit and then everything, that was the time where everything had been intended to be in person and then flipped to go virtual. So I had to redo the whole conference um, again for a virtual uh, convention. And then my third year, it was me transitioning out and then someone shadowing me and kind of me showing her the ropes. So yeah, I finally have cycled off. Um, it was a fantastic experience. I got to meet so many people. Um, it was a lot of work though. So I am, you know, also happy to kind of pass the reins now that mm -hmm. I've done my service, but I wouldn't, you know, pass it up. I'm really glad I did that. Um, made a lot of really great connections. So um so that, yeah, that was really, a really fun process. Good. Yeah, it sounds like it. I've had many other guests uh, serve as chair and um, um, a lot of hard work and a lot of dedication and, and commitment over a two or three year period. Mm -hmm. um, but they really look back fondly on the experience because it shows them what happens behind the scenes. You just take it for granted. Mm -hmm. I show up and I go to the virtual or in person. You don't realize how much work is involved in planning all of that. So, yeah. Um, Eventually, I, uh, right now you're at uh, University of Georgia and you've been there since 2013, but your first job out of graduate school after you received your doctorate, mm -hmm. I believe you're at Auburn University as assistant professor. So how did you yeah. end up uh, at Auburn University? 
Well, um, before I forget, can I backtrack to what you had added to my recommendations? Because I thought sure. of something to add on to that, too. Of course. Yeah. So, I loved your suggestion of reading the professor's articles and seeing what they're doing. To add on to that, the publication process is really long, and sometimes it takes a couple years for a paper to be published. And so if you're looking at an article that is, you know, even three, four, five years ago, it actually might have been something the professor was doing seven, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And so it seems recent, but it actually might be something they're not doing anymore. And so that email that you had mentioned, that's a good place to, to ask, you know, I really liked this article um, and the research you're doing this in this area. I wanted to make sure or see if you're still researching in this domain, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, because I think sometimes students will look back at stuff I did 10 years ago and I'm like, well, I mean, I don't know if I do that so much anymore. I found it really interesting then. But so if they're trying to make a really good match and they're talking about that in their personal statement, um, you know, it just might not be, uh, we might not see that connection um, mm -hmm. as much as if they're talking about more recent stuff. Yeah, very good um, point. And, and another way to, well, how do you know? Well, you just have to talk to them uh, and reach mm -hmm. out to them via email or call them. Uh, you can look at, you know, a lot of professors update their uh, curriculum Vita or Vita online. And yeah. so if you see stuff that is impressed, it's probably more recent, but it isn't a guarantee that it's more recent. You could have worked on this three, four or five years ago and mm -hmm. then revisited it or done another uh, a follow up study to confirm the findings or see if it right. has changed. Um, yeah. so I guess the bottom line is, yeah, just reach out and make sure that, uh, what their current mm -hmm. uh, line of research is, because it will be kind of embarrassing to say, yes, I want to be with Dr. Clark. She has focused on this line of research for years and years, and then find out during the interview process or, or they read it. Well, she's been out of that line of research for five, six years now she's doing something else. So, uh, yeah. And no. as a student applying, I would have had no idea, you know, right. so, um, yeah, definitely. So back to your question about Auburn. Yep. Um, so up until my second year of grad school, I still thought I wanted to go consulting. But um, a couple of years into it, I realized, oh, no, I just really love this research stuff. So then I really transitioned to thinking about an academic career. And um, so that was my first job out of graduate school in IO. Unlike other psychology disciplines, we don't tend to do postdocs. We tend to go right into our jobs. And so I applied to, gosh, I mean, a lot of schools, maybe like 20 um, when I was going through. I guess I like to make sure when I apply that I apply to as many as I possibly can to, to have backups and so that at least I'll get in somewhere or get accepted somewhere. So I got um, a few different job talk um, interviews. So when you apply to academic jobs, you do a job talk, which you visit there, you do a presentation, but you have a lot of different meetings with different faculty in the, in the department. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had never been uh, to Auburn, hadn't really considered living in Alabama, but heck, I like the weather. So um, I definitely fell in love with the campus. It's beautiful. Auburn, Alabama is a really great town actually and I really liked the people there um, there were some other schools that were um, appealing to me but that one really checked all the boxes mm -hmm. and so I thought it was really a great um, first school to get my you know first job and um, I wasn't really planning on leaving there um, until actually a, a mentor of mine mentioned the the UGA job but so Auburn was was great. I really enjoyed my time there. I got there right in time for them to win the national championship with Cam, Cam Newton. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm a big football fan. So, of right. course, you know, it's fun to be at a good football school. And here I am at Georgia. So, yeah. Well, good, good. I have two follow up questions. You mentioned something that I actually just learned. You mentioned that unlike other psychology branches where you usually do a postdoc, I owe you usually don't. Now, while you were talking, I was thinking about that and I was thinking, well, of course you don't, because you're not doing any clinical work. You're not doing any uh, work with uh, um, clients. So tell me a little bit more about that, if you can kind of explain what, uh, just tell me a little bit more that that uh, roused my curiosity. About why we don't do a postdoc? Correct, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, honestly, that I really don't know why we don't. Um, it's just not the norm. And, and it might be, like you said, that we don't do kind of clinical trials and that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. And um, up until like the last five or so years, really, these federal grants and working on a grant-funded project wasn't um, something that IO was known for. Although now um, we are expected more and more to to apply for and get these federal grants. So there are more opportunities, I think, to do postdocs in IO psych related work than than there were even five years ago. Um, so so one is probably a function of there's not as many grant funded postdoc positions available. Um, but yeah, um, it definitely was very unusual back when I was graduating and, and still somewhat unusual now. Um, although I do know, you know, several students that have gone on to postdocs, there are, there are more opportunities now Sure, that we're getting more into the grant funding. I'm sure that it's evolved. And, and on previous episodes, we've talked about grant writing and grant funding and, you know, depending on which area or branch of psychology you're in, I, I'm kind of putting things and talking out loud with you while I'm talking here, but it, it kind of makes sense a little bit more about the IO, but there still could be possible, you know, opportunities for grants uh, mm -hmm. to help fund some of your research. So one other question before I move on um, that I a follow up question to your response was you, you applied to many different uh, uh, colleges and universities after you graduated with your doctorate. Kind of give us a high level view of how did you go about that? I mean, I know some of our listeners are going to be, they're already in their master's or they're going to be, and then if they want to stay in the academic world and, and move on and become an assistant professor, you know, uh, they, they would have to go out and do some research, but tell us kind of your thought process of how did you go about um, uh, deciding what the next steps would be? Does that yeah. make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, I really liked the research part. And so that was kind of a big decision point there because going in academia, um, you can go to a more teaching oriented role mm -hmm. or research oriented role. Um, and the teaching positions, uh, you know, you, you have a much higher course load. You might be teaching four classes a semester. And um, I knew that although I sort of enjoyed the process of being a TA. It was not my passion. Um, and the research is really where I found a lot of joy. And um, so I knew I wanted a research-oriented position. So I was not applying to uh, colleges that there was not um, at least a PhD program. But I also applied to places that they only had a master's in IO program. But as long as it was research focused, so it had to require a, a thesis, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it did narrow it down a bit. I also, um, there are parallel programs um, in business schools, management programs, organizational behavior, that they actually, you know, there are a lot of IO psych PhDs that actually end up going to work in a business school in an organizational uh, behavior program or management program. So I did branch out into the business world and applied to some of those positions. Um, not all of them had PhD programs, but the business schools, um, ironically, you would think they would be more applied focused working with companies, but they are actually more research focused in terms of their PhD programs a lot. Um, so I applied to business schools and psych programs. Um, and I interviewed at actually a business school, um, a, a psych program that was just a master's and psych programs that had um, PhD programs. So I, I applied and interviewed at kind of the whole range. But Auburn, like I said, just seemed like the best fit. So I think and also location. Um, I, I don't know if I specifically would choose a school in a really cold area. I'm kind of a wimp when it comes to being uh, cold. So I was really, you know, not focusing a lot on the North and the Midwest. I was focusing more on schools, you know, at least with moderate temperatures. Um, so location mattered. Um, my uh, husband, you know, needed to be close to some sort of metropolitan area. So I think for students deciding where to live, um, that might play a role, you know, is it in the middle of nowhere or is it near, 
you know, a, met a metropolitan area where your spouse can get different jobs. Um, so a lot of different factors. Uh, mm -hmm. But really, when it comes down to it, you know, once I kind of narrowed it down and then I was applying to these programs, um, it was a matter of kind of what checked the most boxes of all of these different things I was looking for. Sure. Thank you for going through that. I know it's helpful for our audience and, and listeners to uh, uh, kind of hear different ways that people approach that whole process because it could be overwhelming. All of a mm -hmm. sudden you have your degree or you're about to have your degree. Where do I start? What do I do? Yeah. You know, and so thank you for sharing that. And now you're at the University of Georgia and you mentioned earlier in your response that a colleague of yours, a mentor or somebody mentioned that there was an opening there. And so tell us about uh, that process. And, and uh, obviously you've been there for a number of years now, almost nine years, I would, that's, yeah. I would think <laughs> now. So tell us a little bit more about your transition from Auburn to University of Georgia. Yeah, so I, um, they're both great programs. Um, Georgia, the IO program is, is ranked um, a little bit higher than Auburn's and is a much larger program. There are more faculty in the IO program and in the department more broadly. Um, and so, you know, it, it definitely was appealing to me to go to such a prestigious program as Georgia. Um, and, you know, there were only three of us in the, the IO program at Auburn. So, so it was a big change. I think when I started, there were like eight IO faculty at Georgia. So, um, and then since I've been there, they started the master, the terminal master's program in addition to the PhD program. Mm -hmm. So, um, and actually at the same time, I was working on a project where we were ranking all of the um, IO psych doctoral programs in the country based on faculty productivity. So it, it was not purposeful, but it, it actually just worked out perfectly when we were doing the rankings. Um, I heard about Georgia and then I realized, oh my gosh, with our rankings that we're doing, Georgia's number two on a lot of these metrics. So okay. it was really um, kind of moving quite a bit up in terms of prestige of the program. Um, and that ranking study is one of several, by the way, that are on PSYOP's website. So this goes for undergrad students and people um, looking for graduate programs and also people looking for jobs. If you go to PSYOP's website, um, I think it's in the student resources section. Uh, you can learn a lot about IO psychology, but also there um, is a page where it, it lists all the different programs and it has a bunch of different studies. So um, let's see here. Career center, maybe? No. Should I just search Where for... Where would it be? Um, what about research and publications? Is that... Right here? Okay. No. Um... Maybe students uh, go under. Oh, yes. Go students. to students. Yeah. Okay. Student resources. Yeah. Yes. This is where it is. Um, so all of this is great. You know, it has a bunch of links about IO psychology, but then you can learn about grad school, being a grad student. Um, the one of these links here basically has a, a search function where you can search and get a list of all the different master's programs, all the different PhD programs around the country. Uh, mm -hmm. Yep, there you go, perfect. Yeah, so this is such a great resource and they have really improved all of these different pages so much over the years. Um, and uh, so our ranking study and other ranking studies are in here too, so you can, um, and my apologies, I don't know exactly. Oh, maybe it's in the how to choose a grad training program. Mm -hmm. um, so you can kind of see, you know, how are these different programs ranked, you know, from a variety of different metrics, but then also get these great, it's a great search function. They've really done mm -hmm. a fantastic job. Mm -hmm. No, it looks like it. And, you know, during our uh, uh, discussion while you were talking, I, I was sharing the screen. For those of you who are just listening on the podcast, I did share the screen to... Uh, 
um, show everybody where to go. And there's a number of other resources under the student section uh, on the SIOP uh, uh, website as well. So um, you you have a lab. Now, earlier you mentioned, hey, I wish I had lab experience. So now we're going <laughs> to switch and we're going to talk about your lab. And it's, it's uh, the Wafer Lab, and that stands for Work and Family Experience Research Lab. And so uh, I am uh, am I sharing the screen? I don't think I'm sharing the screen. Let me switch. There we go. Now I'm sharing the screen. There we go. So now we are yeah. on your, your wafer lab and, you know, you have people, research measures, blog and media. And um, what's nice about this is it gives you a little bit more information and you have a click here to apply. So if, mm -hmm. if those people who are interested in, and as you mentioned, um, just get involved in the lab and that will let you know whether or not you truly like doing some of that uh, work. Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't, then great, then you figured that out. But at least, you know, um, uh, talk to, you know, whoever is in the lab and, and whoever uh, alum who have been in the lab as well. I think I saw mm -hmm. on here, you have a photo gallery of some people, uh, you know, presenting their posters. And then somewhere in here, I think you talked about the people. And yeah, I think then, it's under the people link and like where they are now, that kind yeah. of thing. Yep. Yeah, current, definitely. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, when did this, uh, was this already in existence when you came or did you start this? Tell me a little bit more background on the Wafer Lab. Yeah. So I started it, um, was trying to come up with a catchy name. Uh, and so I don't know why Wafer was what I chose. My, my stepdad used to work for Keebler. Maybe that's why. I have no idea. <laughs> but um so I started the lab and based on my research interest in, you know, the work family domain and the intersection between work and home and occupational health, that kind of thing. Um, and just kind of built it from scratch, you know, started slowly with just, um, well, it actually kind of started at Auburn um, and then I just moved it over to Georgia. But, you know, when, when you first start as a faculty member, you don't have grad students yet. So mm -hmm. at Auburn, my first lab director was actually an undergrad student that later went on to get his PhD um, at Wayne State, ironically. Um, so it was just undergrads, you know, a handful of undergrads. And then it just kind of built over time as I got graduate students and uh, moved it over to Georgia and continued to grow. And at its biggest, I think we had about 12 or 13 undergrads and four or five grad students. And, you know, we just work on a variety of projects and grad students help lead different projects. And we try to give undergrads a variety of experience. Um, and, you know, that's definitely, uh, again, just wonderful experience for, for undergrads. But I would say another thing, kind of getting sidetracked a little bit, but I just thought of it, in terms of getting into grad school and maximizing your chances, you know, I think there, you don't have to rush to get into a PhD program. If you want, you can explore um, opportunities to volunteer in research labs even after you graduate. So take a gap year or take a gap couple years. Mm -hmm. I have had students, I'm thinking specifically of a recent, um, you know, a lab manager here at Georgia. She she was a student of mine in undergrad, um, didn't really know what she wanted to do either, but then graduated, stayed around town, and then ended up sticking around in the lab. She was my lab manager as like a, a graduate. She wasn't a current student at all. Did that for two years, and now she's in a master's program in, in leadership and management. Um, and so if you still don't know what you want to do and you haven't got enough lab experience, you can reach out to professors at different schools. I mean, you could even see if you can do something remote nowadays and do a virtual. That's, you know, maybe not a, super common, but you can get involved in research labs, uh, you know, even after you graduate to get even more experience. No, that's a good point. I haven't really thought about that. Um, I'm sharing the screen again. And you can, of course, find out I'll have these links on, on your uh, podcast when we go live. But um, 
you, you basically talk about your main uh, streams uh, following loosely these three different areas, and, and I'll read them out loud for those who are just listening. Uh, three main areas, work, family conflict, workaholism, and emotions at work and home. And then on the website, it also talks about the research that um, you guys are doing within the lab, within the Wafer Lab as well. And you're still mm-hmm. looking. You're always looking, as it says. Always here, looking. Research <laughs> participants. So you have different uh, lab projects here. And I looked at all of your uh, um uh, you know, studies and, and stuff that have been impressed. I looked at your curriculum vita on my other screen here, but you know, one thing that I found interesting that I hadn't really thought of before was at one point I started reading a little bit more about, um, how veterans, I mean, veterinarians, not veterans, veterinarians have four times the suicide rate of the general population. And I wouldn't have even thought about that. And then I read I a little know, bit more about your research. <laughs> I think that was a couple of years ago. I think it was uh, 2019, 2020 that you mm-hmm. did that. So um, that that was interesting. But it's it, it, talk about how the pandemic might have impacted your lines of research and how you go about researching. Before we started recording mm-hmm. the uh, podcast here, I mentioned I found a lot of the uh, information on how you measure uh, well-being um, uh, of, of people. It's usually a self-assessment, you know, uh, assessment, but now you're using more of those uh, objective indicators like uh, um, uh, BP or HR var- variability, heart rate variability, mm-hmm. or other biomarkers. So tell me a little bit more of how the pandemic has impacted your lines of research. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely uh, really highlighted the importance of focusing on employee well-being and employee health. Um, And I think, you know, before the pandemic, that was already an area that I was interested in. But um, I think all of us, cumulatively, we have gone through so much in the last couple years, and you're seeing the effects, you know, now in terms oh, of sorry. how people, <laughs> let me stop that. Go oh. ahead. Sorry. Oh, so you're seeing the effects of just the, the toll of the pandemic on workers. You hear about, um, the great resignation and mm-hmm. people really wanting remote work instead of in-person work. And why is this? It's because, well, for a lot of different factors, but you know, one, it's kind of, um, really force people to think about what's important and it really highlights what's important in life, you know, in terms of um, the different roles that they hold, the different identities that they hold, um, how are companies supporting workers or how, the, how are they not supporting workers? That's really become quite evident during the pandemic and em- employees have realized, wow, you know, I didn't realize that my company was so supportive or I didn't realize that they were not very supportive and maybe thinking through where they want to spend the rest of their careers. But everyone more, most importantly is so burnt out. We are so, so, so burnt out. And what do we, you know, how are we going to move forward from that? Um, And so it, it is really kind of just highlighted the importance of that area of research. And so I'm really, um, you know, looking at how it, initially it was how people are coping with COVID and the pandemic and um, juggling work and, and family and conducted some some studies looking at that. Um, and now I'm really still just continuing to focus on how can we help employees to uh, kind of come out of this pandemic and, and, you know, cope with their burnout and um, what is the meaning of, of work in the big scheme of things? So kind of like um, just highlighting that that this is all, yes, work is something we do, but, but what does that mean for people and how do they identify with work and what do they want to do um, in terms of their different life roles? Yeah, and, and you know, what's interesting about that is I, I found some research and you were on a couple of podcasts as well and one one of the podcasts was dealing with that very topic um and how parents and employees can navigate the post-pandemic workplace and uh, i'll share my screen once again here and um this was a more recent one and so a lot of the burnout and suicide rate information is interesting because it's 
um, three, four, five years old, and you really mm-hmm. don't have more up-to-date uh, information. And that makes sense because it takes time to conduct the research, put it all together, uh, have right. that peer review, and then have it uh, uh, published. But the most recent uh, article that I saw on some of the numbers, and I'm jumping around here, but you know, here's one that uh, um, talks about the top 10 jobs uh, with the highest suicide rates, if you can see my screen. And of course, there's veterinarians. There they are, number, number four. four. Yeah. And, yeah. So, you know, a lot of these, uh, when I was growing up in high school and college, I always thought that uh, and heard that um, air traffic controllers were the high high ones and they don't even appear on any of the lists that I've seen right. when I was doing the research. So it's interesting yeah. how it's evolved throughout the years. One article that you were uh, quoted in and, and when you were uh, uh, talking, this is a, uh, a Yahoo um, Life uh, article that was talking about working on Christmas. Employees who work through holidays often suffer burnout. And this was actually December 23rd, 2021. And then um, they um, talked to you or, or looked at some of your uh, research and uh, you started talking about workaholism. And so I, I'm, I'm sharing this with you because I have a question that how do you tell the difference between workaholism and somebody who really enjoys working? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. And that is um, a common question that I get. And it's tricky, honestly, because um you know, there's another concept called work engagement that is basically, you know, people might be working long hours. Um, and so that resembles someone who's a workaholic, but, but really, um, it's a difference in what is driving that work. And so do our, you know, do the employees feel like they are, um, that they have to work, that they ought to work, this almost like inner compulsion, oh, I should be doing this, I can't be enjoying this time with my family, I should be doing work and feeling anxious if they're not or guilty if they're not always thinking about work, that kind of thing. But someone that's a really engaged worker is um, drawn to work because of intrinsic motivation, they just really love it, right? Mm -hmm. But um, it's not that simple. It's not just you are one or the other, you can be both at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can ebb and flow and kind of change depending on your life circumstances. So someone that, you know, really is drawn to a a career um, because they love it. So maybe they go into the medical profession because they just absolutely love helping people. Um, But it's possible that they then find themselves in an environment that tends to, um, I do think there's a, a, an internal component, but it can be exacerbated by the environment, by the culture of the workplace. And so if you're in a overworked culture where all of your coworkers are working 24 seven in this like competition of trying to outdo and outwork everyone else, then what starts out as something you really enjoyed can actually start to transition into something that now you just feel like uh, this kind of pressure, but it's not just coming from externally anymore. It's also something that you have partially internalized. And now you are feeling this, oh, I I really, I just have to be working all the time and I I just should. So it can become complicated um, in terms of teasing that apart But I think what's most important in looking at outcomes is that the negative outcomes seem to be driven primarily from um, this this compulsion, this feeling of the compulsion to work and um, thinking about work all the time and not being able to disengage. And while you were talking about that, I was reflecting on my own work habits and my view of, uh, hey, I should be working. And I honestly... When I'm on vacation, I take a vacation, but I still feel obligated to check emails and stay on top of things. And there were times when I would do that, probably 60, 70% of the time I'd do that. And I'd come back to work and I'd feel like I, I really didn't have any time off. Right. And then I, yeah. then I purposely uh, just shut off everything and walked away from everything. And then you feel, at least for me, uh, and maybe you find this in your studies as well, mm-hmm. but at least for me, I felt refreshed after I uh, truly disengaged and didn't have to uh, focus on that. So it's yeah. it's interesting. It's it's applicable to everybody, as you said at the beginning of the podcast, that everybody kind of has to uh, think about IO, even though they're not really knowing it as IO, because uh, you're working, right. whether it's from at home or uh, um, having to drive in as well. So mm-hmm. what do you, what do you love most about your current job? 
Um, I love the the fact that I get to engage in research and I get paid for it. Um, mm -hmm. Again, it's just I'm a I'm, I feel like I'm always a student. I'm always learning and always um, kind of absorbing new information. Um, I just really love the flexibility too. You know, mm -hmm. I um, get to I, I have two kids and kids are really my kids are really important to me. It's a big part of my identity being a mother. And so I get to structure my days sometimes so that I'm, you know, or I could structure it as much as I want, where maybe I um, don't work between 2.30 and 8, but I start to work earlier in the morning and maybe pick work up later. So I have that flexibility in my job where I don't have to be somewhere sitting in a seat from 9 to 5. Mm -hmm. And I get to choose what I want to research. I created this lab and it can go in whatever direction I want. So I love that autonomy um, and just being able to, to kind of craft my job in, you know, these, these ways that I want. Um, so I, that's my favorite part of the job, just the flexibility and constant learning. And um, yeah, it's just really fun to me. When I was teaching, uh, when I went through my grad school, I was a TA and uh, um uh, I received a stipend as well. And so I loved teaching while I was working on my uh, master's and doctorate as well. And so I learned a lot from the students in the classes mm -hmm. as well. So that's another yeah. thing that I really enjoyed is, oh, I hadn't thought about it that way. And then you grow and learn together as a team. And I like that approach um, uh, versus in elementary school and stuff, you're, you're mostly managing behavior and, and, and they're not really at that level yet. So intellectually yeah. being able to do that so yeah are, i love that too don't get me wrong i i love teaching and you brought up a good point of it is just a different environment you know they're the students in the phd programs and uh they're like your colleagues almost like you're just batting ideas off of one another you're learning from each other the students come in they have all you know so much knowledge and expertise and so and you know in terms of stats they're on top of like the most you know sophisticated uh, stats programs. And so I learned from them too. And we haven't even talked about it, but I absolutely love teaching in our terminal master's program as well. That's a professional master's program. So all of these individuals are working full time and then they take classes on the weekend. Mm -hmm. And so they are working professionals and those classes are so much fun. I'm teaching statistics, which is not really a fun class, you would think, but we, we always take real world experiences and kind of apply it, apply statistics to that and um, understanding human behavior and just getting all of their, you know, real world experiences. It, it's just really fun. And every class is just, you know, um, unique and different. I should uh, take the opportunity to go ahead and share my screen one last time here. And I, I had it up earlier in the podcast, but I did want to highlight just so people didn't miss that. Uh, University of Georgia, UGA has both a terminal master's uh, program and then a PhD program. And if you can see my screen on the right side here, well, on the left side, just a general overview of the programs. And then on the right side, you have a master's program link, and it tells you a little bit more about this. And a, a recent, uh, in February 3rd, you're going to have an information session on IO psychology master's program. And then uh, obviously, you can see the links here about the curriculum, admissions, applications process, and I'll go back and you can actually look at the industrial organizational doctoral program as well. And similarly, it has links on there about uh, a little bit more information, application process, and then a student handbook and stuff. So I, I wanted to highlight that. that so our listeners and, and viewers, if you are interested in IO, uh, obviously give you UGA uh, a shot and a look at uh, as well. And if you need to, obviously, you can reach out to uh, Melissa Clark directly and, and find out uh, some more information. So I wanted to uh, uh, share that with our listeners as well. So. Thank you for highlighting that. And yeah, I'm happy to answer questions about, you know, what's the difference between these two programs? I mean, they are very different from each other, mm -hmm. um, you know, and in, in, uh, choosing to go to a, master, a terminal master's program over a PhD program, that's, you know, it has a lot of pros and cons to consider. And, um, you know, our terminal master's program uh, you know, the students there, they're, they're working full time and they're looking to stay in the um, applied world. So they're going to mm -hmm. stay in industry. Uh, and so it would not be a path that I would recommend someone that wants to be a professor one day. The, a sure. terminal master's program, usually you would have to 
redo your master's in a PhD program. So, and you, you don't get stipends in these terminal master's programs typically, whereas you might in a PhD program. So, you know, definite pros and cons, and it depends on what you want to do career-wise. Yeah, very good advice. Uh, we have some other fun questions that I usually end up uh, uh, asking some of my guests. And one of them is, what is your favorite term, principle, or theory, and why? I knew you were going to ask this. And I kept, <laughs> I was thinking this morning, I, I can't think of a great uh, answer. But um, the only thing that's coming to mind is what is uh, something that I think about now a lot, uh, post-pandemic or in the middle of the pandemic where we are now is um, the theories about rest and recovery. Um, because, you know, IO psychology was started to maximize employee productivity, but now it's completely different. And really it's about sustainability over your career and not burning out after, you know, working 24 seven for just a couple of years. So I just find the research on rest and recovery so fascinating it's applicable to my research on workaholism and employee well-being and and i try to apply this in my own life because i do identify as someone who has workaholic tendencies and so i try to practice what i preach and i've learned so many different things about you know how counterintuitively exercise during the day can invigorate you instead of tire you out and you know different kinds of activities after work might be a better recovery strategy for some people than others. Some, some people really like to be active in, in doing something, whether it's, you know, wood crafting or um, a co-ed soccer team, but other people really get their rest and recovery from pure relaxation, whether mindfulness or reading. And so just uh, that research I find really fascinating and very applicable. It's interesting that you brought that up. Um, I have found talking to my colleagues and friends when they're when they switched from working at work a f different location, now they're working at home. They're actually sitting longer. They find themselves sitting longer. <laughs> Same. Where, whereas, whereas you'd think you're at home, you should be able to you know get up anytime. I purposely have to remind myself get up every so often because. Mm -hmm. I, six, seven hours go by and I've been sitting in this chair and then you get up, and, oh, yep. you, you know, and so yes, it's interesting <laughs> how everything changes. Um, what is something that you have learned uh, recently that's new to you? It could be inside or outside of your work, anything. Uh, I've, I've had some uh, guests just bring up anything out of the blue, but something new <laughs> that you have learned recently. Um, I don't know. Everything's so different now because of COVID. The last couple of years, just I feel like... Um, I don't know. I haven't been able to do as many things. Uh, so the only thing I could think of is work related. Mm -hmm. I have recently um, accepted a position as graduate coordinator in our department. And mm -hmm. um, that's a, a, a new role where I'm learning a whole bunch of uh, new, you know, platforms and um, procedures and, and, and really just a newfound love for mentorship, because now it's not just mentoring the IO students, it's mentoring all of the graduate students in our department. There's about 100 grad students. And so just really being excited for their accomplishments and helping them to apply for different awards. And so I've just in this new role, my last semester has been learning the, the ins and outs of this. So it is work related, but it is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. I was just going to say, that's fine. You don't have to feel guilty that it's uh, work-related. <laughs> uh, I did see some of your awards and, and on your curriculum vita, and then your undergraduate courses and graduate courses. And then, yeah, you did list um, you know, some of your new roles as mentor and, and, and uh, serving on those uh, um, committees as well. And so um, it, it's something new as well. Uh, so I think it's important to add new things to do. I remember uh, reading an Alzheimer's uh, article, anything that you can do differently and yeah. play new games and uh, yeah. builds different neural pathways and everything. So yeah. doing something new is, is good for your brain as well. So I'm, I'm going off on a tangent. Let me get back here. Do you, have, <laughs> <laughs> do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of psychology or those wanting to become an assistant professor? They want to stay in the academic world. So any other advice? Um, you know, I think I've covered a lot of the things I wanted to touch on. Um, you know, I'd say, 
definitely absorb as much as you can while you're an undergrad, get that experience, make those personal connections. Um, don't feel rushed to get right into graduate school. Um, don't feel rushed to finish your PhD program as fast as possible either. I took six years to get through my PhD program. I also had a couple kids uh, while I was a PhD student, so that might have been part of the delay. But, you know, I just feel like we're always, at least I was, feeling this urgency of, I got to, you know, do this. I got to do this to meet whatever expectations I, I think people are having for me. Um, mm -hmm. But really taking the time to uh, decide, you know, is this the right path and explore different potential pathways and be open to, um, you know, having a career that you hadn't initially considered um, or going into a field that you hadn't initially considered. Um, seize those opportunities that, you know, it might seem like a pain in the moment, but you never know what doors it might open. Sure. Great advice. If you had any time, if you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? Ooh, one project or one trip. Uh, I would definitely go the trip. So one of my hobbies is, uh, I guess you could call it travel hacking. So I just love like, I, you could look it up, but it's, you know, trying to maximize value and get these pretty awesome trips for not spending a ton of money. Um, so I really love just looking up new places to go. I would absolutely love to plan a trip around the world. Um, my son's obsessed with going to Australia. I'd love to take him to Australia, but there's so many different places that I would like to visit. So if I just had unlimited funds, I would just take a year off and just travel, just go all around the world and take my family. I'm with you. And we can bring our Cutco, <laughs> we can bring our Cutco <laughs> Right, exactly. Uh, is, there, is there anything else that you would like to uh, discuss or bring up in this podcast? Um, I just want to thank you for, you know, actually doing this podcast. It is so valuable. Uh, what a what a great tool for people to have. Um, and so I just I really appreciate the work you're doing. And um, I'm, you know, Thankful that you're highlighting industrial organizational psychology. Um, by the way, it is one of the fastest growing careers on all of these lists every year, year in and year out. Um, it's, you know, you can make a, a good amount of money going to the applied world. Uh, it's a really, really fantastic field um, to, to go into, and it's not slowing down. It's just going to continue to grow as more organizations are realizing that they really need to focus on the care and well-being of the workforce if they want them to stick around. So I'm glad, I'm glad that you brought that up and, and thank you for that compliment. We are very enthusiastic about bringing uh, um, all sorts of uh, psychology branches uh, to the forefront and, and increasing the awareness of psychology and, and the field itself. But you're exactly right. When we've uh, done all this research time and time again, we see IO in the top one or two over the past three, always. four years. Yeah. And it's always there. So, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Melissa, I really appreciate your time and willingness to take uh, uh, the time out of your busy schedule to share your thoughts and experiences and, and, and offer your advice. Thanks again for sharing your story and advice with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.